Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at tmobile.com/now. Hey y'all, today we're continuing our run of episodes celebrating the release of the Red Hot Chili Peppers' new album Unlimited Love, produced by Rick Rubin. We left off our episode last week with Anthony Kiedis popping in to join Rick's conversation with guitarist John Fruscianti. Today, we have part two of that conversation between Rick, John, and the band's iconic frontman. We'll hear Anthony talk about how some of the new song lyrics came together, the lengths he went to commute to the studio in Hawaii where he and Rick were recording vocals, and both Anthony and John give their accounts of John's third return to the band. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin, John Fushante. And Anthony Kiedis. How are you feeling, Anthony? I feel pretty good. Good. It's good to see Very you. Very nice to see you. I wish this was in person because I've been looking forward to this moment for quite a while. But it's nice to see you on a, on a big screen in front of me in your Shangri-La anyways. Nice. You look very beautiful there in the, in the environment. <laughs> Bring back good memories of of our last uh, endeavor there. Yes, the memories are, are intense. Um, it's much less crowded here now. My fondest memories are from Kauai. Yeah, it was incredible. That process was unlike anything I've ever been a part of and necessary. Yeah. I, I would have never been able to get that quantity of work finished in any other environment. We've had a good run of interesting places. Like I remember us doing vocals at Chateau Marmont for an album. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that was an interesting, you know, unusual circumstance, getting to go there every day and hang out and record. 
We've had some good ones over the years. Yeah, the, the Laurel Canyon house, the Chateau. John also had a room at the Chateau during the writing of Californication. And John, oh. and John and I got a ton of good songwriting done in his room at the Chateau. But Kauai was, you know, I, I showed up with this 40-some-odd tracks of music that I had to write for and figure out melody for and arrangements. And the idea of waking up every day and just taking hours to write and think about lyrics and ride my bike and let melodies come to me and then show up at your humble little abode with not a lot of pressure and like, you know, this pandemic could last for another week or it could last for 10 years. We don't know. But until we're done with this record, we'll just keep showing up to work. And that ambiance was magical. It was great. And it, it was, I feel like we, it was probably three or four months easy of just focusing on writing and singing. Five. Wow. Five months. Yeah, close to 50 songs. It's a lot of work. It is. And it was so nice to roll up and, and see you every day and, and get some of your <laughs> your calm and your take. And it's nice not to be distracted. You know, in L.A., we have lives and kids and people and traffic and a whole different feeling in the air these days. We did have, I remember we had a few windows where you had to take a boat to get to the house because... Uh... The road washed out or the bridge closed. Do you remember that? I do. So that Landslide. was more, that was more than a few days. <laughs> was it? It was. It was at least a month. And um, wow, you were super helpful. And you're like, no, we're going to figure this out. Uh, you know, we have friends that, that live on the river and you can, you know, use their, their boat ramp and yada, yada. And so I was showing up at an off time because the locals had set up a ferry service to cross the river. And then these ATVs that would go up the muddy mountain to a road that would access your house. And, and I was showing up after the ferry had closed, but there were still these um, food barges with farmers. So in the beginning, I would just jump on a boat full of taro root and, and a literally hundred year old sort of, you know, ancient Hawaiian farmers and that barely spoke English because they were of, you know, mixed ethnicity and had come over from Asia a long time ago. And, and I loved it. I was like, this is really putting me in the right frame of mind to go to work. But then we, we pivoted and we got a local surfer to just meet me at the mouth of the river and take me sort of along the coast. And then I had to hike up a hill next to a, a giant old hotel, which was being refurbished. And that was psychedelic and jungle-like. And I had to walk through a little mini river on my own and I had a backpack full of lyrics and, you know, running into all kinds of, you know, people in bikinis, people that are, you know, chopping down trees in the forest. And so it was kind of an epic way to get to work. Do you remember if any, if any of the, uh, either things that you saw on the boat or on the trip or on the hike work their way into lyrics at all? So not exactly on the, on the boat ride or that particular walk, but I would, prior to coming to your house every morning, I would ride my bicycle from my house to the end of the road, which was also through rivers and past beautiful trees and mountains. And in the song, She's a Lover, which used to be called Zap, I had that song going through my head 
feverishly, the melody, the the music, and that bike ride completely inspired the entire lyric. The flower's pink on the tree, but if you pick it to see, will she be wild and free? Because I used wow. to drive past a tree every day that was covered in pink flowers, and it seemed like a metaphor for a relationship. It's like you admire this thing as it is, but once you try to dominate it or pick it or make it you know, adhere to your agenda, will it still be wild and free? Probably not. Let's listen. Let's listen to Unlimited Love. You up for that? Yeah, play. What is it? What is it now called? That particular song is called "She's a Lover." She's a lover. Yeah. Can can we hear "She's a Lover"?
great. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> so much fun to listen to. That guitar solo really put an unstoppable smile on my face. There's a tiny story worth mentioning about that song, which is when we were recording the vocal in Kauai, you were looking at the lyric sheet and much to my surprise, you, you isolated the lyric Unlimited Love, which really hadn't jumped off the page at, at me. I was too involved in too many pages. You're like, that's a really good title, Unlimited Love. I was like, oh, you think so? And you're like, yeah, 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 that's a really good title. I was like, okay, I, I made a mental note. And then uh, I was keeping a small list of possible album titles, of which that was my least favorite, Unlimited Love. It was For me, it was at the bottom of the list. I had these other more Chili Pepper-esque titles. And when the day came and we were mixing the music and I went to visit John and Flea at the, the mix studio in Hollywood. I was like, guys, do you want to hear some possible album titles? And they were like, yes. And I read them my favorites. And I was like, there's also this title that, that Rick was kind of keen on, which was unlimited love. And both John and Flea were like, Oh, well that's, that's the title right there. I was like, are you sure? Cause these other ones, they're very interesting. And they're like, Nope, Nope. Unlimited love. That's it. It's funny too, because I imagined it as the song title. That's that's what I was, I was. Uh, that was the pitch was for the song title. Yeah. So then then the pitch became, but we can't now. We can't call the song that because we don't want to draw all of the attention to that song, which is, you know, something we considered more of an album track than a hey everybody look at the song track. Yeah. Although I must say it sounds good in headphones. So now I'm going to ask John. Tell me about the process of coming back to the band this time. What? Tell me about uh, what was the first talk of it? This time? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Which time? Which time? <laughs> For those people who don't know, John left the band, rejoined the band, left the band, and has now rejoined the band. So this is the second time you've rejoined? Yeah. Second time you've rejoined. Third join, second rejoin. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, didn't really talk about it. Until Flea and I were were standing in my kitchen and uh, Chad had said something to me when I saw him at Flea's wedding. is like, he misses playing with me. Me and him and Flea should jam sometime. So I mentioned it to Flea. And just because, you know, practicing guitar is something I'm, I was always doing, even though I'm making electronic music. It seemed like it would be a nice soul-cleansing thing to do. And it was within seconds after I suggested that, that Flea was like, you ever think about being in the Red Hot Chili Peppers again? So we started hypothetically discussing the idea, but there were plenty of reservations and things like that. But, but yeah, started to open up the topic then. And then he talked, he said he'd talk to Anthony about it. And then, and Anthony seemed to find the idea interesting. So then the three of us got together and talked about it. Then Flea and Chad and I got together and talked about it. We About a week or two weeks where it was just sort of a possible outcome, but we weren't. I wasn't sure if I was going to do it. They, they weren't sure if, if they were going to do it. It was just, we were just trying to talk about it from every angle. 
I wanted to be sure that we were communicating and, and seeing it from every angle just to make sure that none of us were going to wind up regretting it later. Do you remember the, the first time you guys jammed together again, you know, in this new in, incarnation? Yeah, by then I'm already in the band. That was the thing. I was talking about, well, let's play together and see if the old magic is still there or whatever, <laughs> you know, but Flea went right past that. He was, he was just like, he wanted to concentrate on the topic of whether or not I was going to actually join. Wow. So, yeah, we didn't play together until maybe a month later or something at rehearsal. So it's so interesting for me to hear what John just said, because I was not really privileged to those conversations. And and I'm not exactly sure how it lines up, but I will say that John coming back to join and, and play music with the band was very much in the air because Flea had not mentioned anything to me at all. Not, not, a, not a peep, no nary a mention of John Frusciante or that he was communicating with him or even thinking about that as a possibility. I, I knew that Flea was in a mood, in a disposition where he wasn't feeling his, his, his best self in, in the previous incarnation. For whatever reason, it just like he wasn't, he wasn't on fire. And I started getting a sensation that I wonder how John is. I wonder if he would ever think of participating in any way in our music again. I haven't heard, I haven't spoken to him, haven't, you know, really heard what he's up to. But I just got the sensation like, God, it would be really nice if John would get involved. And I didn't think that he was interested in joining or playing guitar, but I was like, I wonder if he would like write a, co-write a song or produce a song or I just didn't know. I didn't know where to go with this feeling that I had. So I said to Flea, I was like, when we're, when we're done doing what we're doing right now, I want to talk to you afterwards, kind of important. And I was going to bring up this idea of John participating. And he said to me, he's like, no, no, no. I actually have something more important that I have to tell you. And I was like, no, no, no. Let me, I'll, since I brought it up, I'll just tell you what I was thinking. He's like, well, I think you're going to want to hear what I have to say. I was like, okay, can it wait until after I tell you what I was going to say? And basically we were both saying the exact same thing at the exact same time, which was, what do you think about John? And, and when I presented wow. my thing, he's like, well, I, I was thinking of taking a little further and, you know, maybe seeing if he wanted to come back to the band. And I was like, what? I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that you know, yeah. have, have, have you spoken to him? Do you know where his head's at? Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I've actually jammed with him. And I was like, okay, okay. I'm a little, a little behind here. And yeah. that opened the door to all of this. And I, re I remember going to see John at his house where he lived, where he's lived for a long time, where he lived when he used to be in the band and walking in and sitting on the couch with them and, and just trying to get a real sense of, you know, is, is this coming from a place of love and, and creation or does he still have a, like any kind of bitterness towards me or us? And, and I did not feel any of that. I felt a, a great deal of resolution. I don't know if there's ever, a hundred percent resolution because, you know, we as people have too many folds in our brain to like tweak out on stuff. 
speaking for myself. And uh, but I felt like whatever sort of animosity or resentment or all this stuff had had more or less been resolved. And it felt very nice sitting next to him on the couch. And then he said one thing to me, which really made me feel like this is a done deal. I have no choice, come what may, for better, for worse, for disaster or wonder. And he's, I don't know if he looked at me or if I looked at him or if it was just said, but he said, uh, I was born to be in this band. And I was just, I was like, he is telling the truth. And there's no fucking way on earth that I'm going to stop that from happening or do anything other than get out of the way and just let it, let it flow. Because if someone feels like that, then that's supposed to be. And it was, you know, it was, of course it was terribly exciting, a little bit, it was kind of a vulnerable feeling because like John said, is the old magic still there? Or are we just going to be, you know, some weird guys in a room trying to make it happen? But I guess, you know, I I felt more confident that I did concerned. And then when we got back together, it was so raw and basic and starting from scratch that it it just felt right. It felt like, oh, you know, we, we have a lot of work to do to like figure this out, but what a nice place to be. And, you know, John made some really wise suggestions in in the very beginning. He was like, you know, let's learn some old blues songs and let's learn some really old Red Hot Chili Pepper songs. So instead of like, you know, trying to get back into where we had left off or anything like that, it's like, let's go all the way back and just learn, you know, how to play some really beautiful, somewhat challenging, but basic you know, rock and roll kind of building blocks. And I thought that was so smart because I needed to do that. And then the rest, the rest of the writing and the playing together started to happen way more naturally. And I think because John hadn't written a lot of rock music songs for quite a while, he, he had in him a reservoir of ideas and chord progressions and arrangements and vocal melodies and all these things that he must've been kind of quietly keeping in his back pocket that started to flow. And then uh, the, the process was on. It's like every time John would bring a gem into practice, you know, Flea would feel like, okay, I'll, I'll bring a gem. And then I would be like, oh, these guys are bringing gems. I, I better, you know, go for a very long drive in my Chevy and figure out a, you know, something to add to the stew, which is, you know, part of our creative process. And it, it felt it felt really natural. It felt really natural and like no pretense or, you know, expectation. It's just like, let's go all the way back to the beginning and just start from zero. That That's what it was like from my perspective, but I didn't know all these other things were going on. It's interesting. That's one of the things that I found fascinating about doing this podcast is that even when I talk to people who I know well, we know each other for 30 years. We made our first album together 30 years ago and we even met before that. And in the process of talking about stuff, we learn things that we never knew about each other, even though we sit in a room together every day. We never really interview each other. We never <laughs> ask questions. We never go back. There's no reason to because we're always moving forward. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's fascinating to you know, hear the person who, who you're in a band with have 
a, a different experience leading up to the experience of joining mm. than yours, which makes sense because they had their own. But all you know is your perspective. So yes. it's, it's fascinating to talk about these things. And for me, it's interesting when I get to talk to people that I don't know. But when I talk to people that I do know, I learn so much. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, that's part of your gig these days. It just, it's crazy because Unlimited Love, I was there the day that you brought in the song and I had no idea that you saw the pink flower from the tree. <laughs> I had no idea that's where the words came from. I had no idea. Yep. Riding bikes with, with my son and he was probably trying to talk to me and all I was doing was hearing this song play over and over again in my, in my head. That, that thing that I said to Anthony about being born to be in the band, by the way, like that was something that I, that I always felt it was said more as a statement of fact than, than any kind of yeah. a, attempt to sell myself or something, you know, like, no, like, Understood. It, yeah, it was, it was definitely like a feeling that I just had to live with whether I was going to, you know, rejoin or not. That was just a reality of my existence that it felt like that, that that was on a, on a universal scale. That was, that was the purpose to my life, you know? Yeah. Sometimes we don't know it until we're outside of it or looking back on it that we realize, oh yeah, the reason, the reason I've been doing this all this time is like, this is my reason to be alive. Yeah. This is the reason I'm here. I can do other things, yeah. but, the, but my purpose is to do this. And it's a great feeling to, to acknowledge that, you know, like to feel it and to know I'm doing it. Like I get to do it. And, and on the days when it's hard to do, which it's hard sometimes, it makes it not easier, but it, it helps the challenge of understanding, well, I'm doing my life's work, even though I don't want to go to work today. I'm doing my life's work. I get to do this. This is my contribution. I'm showing up. I'm going to do the very best I possibly can because this is why I'm here. Yeah. And it's a great feeling to have. It's a great feeling to recognize it. And I think it's a very powerful frame when you recognize it, because you can't make it up, it's like you recognize you, you get to eventually recognize it, but once you recognize it, it is like a superpower. Yeah, there because because there's ways you know I love I love challenging myself in different ways in life, whether it's with a type of book that that's difficult for me, or whether it's learning music that's beyond my a little beyond my ability or whatever. But but there's something about being in the in the band that. It feels like I, I'm trying from a place that doesn't require that much effort. I can be exactly what I am and try specifically within that set of limitations and not try to push myself outside of them. But I, I, can, get in, I can be in touch with the part of myself that was there when I was five years old, six years old. That's the energy that can do, go into the band. I don't have to try to be something that's taken a lot of effort like i i have to just be in touch with it feels like with the essence of who i am it's beautiful yeah and it probably speaks to the longevity like when you're not trying to be something that you're not you can just do it for a lifetime because yeah. that's what you are and just just to be transparent about our conversation on the couch before you joined the band i think one of the reasons that it was such a successful conversation is Nobody was trying to sell anybody anything. Like, I wasn't trying to convince you to do something. You weren't trying to convince me to do something. We were just, you know, putting it out for what it was. And 
and when I share that very intimate story, it's it's be, it's out of like love and, and emotion, because that really sh- struck a chord inside of me when you said that. It wasn't like he's trying to talk me into something. It was like he's being honest with me, and he's telling me something that's at the the essence of his core, and it's the truth. And you know that was just something that I. It meant a lot to me that you were, you know, willing to tell me that. And I certainly didn't feel like you were trying to sell me anything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's there's a feeling of comfort for me with, with Anthony and Flea that I, I really don't have with anybody else. It, I think it has to do with so many things. It has to do with with going to that depth of musical connection in so many in at so many different times. And it might also have something to do with the fact that we went from being a club band to playing arenas together and nobody but us shared that experience, you know, which is a pretty real thing because that can make you feel very separate from other people. And so even if you're at odds with each other or, or going through some sort of personal disconnection, you're connected in this deep way despite all of it. It's impossible to have that kind of connection with, other, with, with anybody else, you know. Whether Anthony and I have talked over periods of time, he's always, I'm always aware that like that who I am and what every every detail of my life, the result of it, it is the result of that connection that I have as a soul with him and with Flea and with Chad, you know. It always felt like they were close to me. And sometimes that's a painful feeling because because you you realize that that in some ways you were at fault in a certain area of the relationship or in some ways at a different time you might be bitter and see that it's the other person's fault. But when you put all those kind of blame things aside and just live with the reality of what it was, that I have a closeness with those people that that's its own thing that's completely separate from all other human relationships I could possibly have on this earth. I will add even to go even further that in addition to it being unlike any relationship you could have with anyone else, it's probably unlike a relationship that anyone else can even understand. Right. That's how unique being in a band on and off for 30 years with a group of people and going to those emotional places of creation together. Yeah, you make yourself so vulnerable when you do it, especially if you try to dig deep into yourself in the way that we always have. You make yourself so vulnerable to the rest of the world. It's only with each other that you have this level of comfort. And sometimes that means that you have some sort of an ugly outburst with each (laughs) other. And sometimes it means that you have the funniest, funnest times that you could have with anybody. It's a level of closeness that, I mean, I guess family is the only thing that I could really compare it to, but but it's so much more limited than family because it's really just those four people, you know? Well, I I would just for a moment like to speak to what John just said briefly because that was really very clearly expressed and sometimes it's hard to put words to those experiences and those feelings of having the brotherhood and the friendship and the experience of being in a band because it's certainly something like with your with your biological family whether you like them or not or love them or not you can never really quit it because there's this biological connection and and the the dynamic of parents and children and brothers and sisters it's like you may want to divorce yourself but really there's a there's an invisible tether where you can't and and 
the same is kind of true for the family that you choose when you have a a deep lifelong experience with like like John said even when we were not in a band together our destinies and our and our lives are completely shaped by one another forever for you know lots of good purposes but when John had left the band most recently for a large chunk of time you know over 10 years it never left my reality or my awareness that everything I was doing was largely in part of what, what John had contributed to my life. So whether I was writing music or whether I was going on tour without John, every time we had that experience, I was like, I would not be here if, if not for my experience with John and, you know, my successes and, and failures and everything in between. I was always had an awareness that, you know, John is, a part of why this is happening. And there was always a sense of gratitude that came along with that because there, there is a weird, beautiful, nonverbal closeness that comes with playing music with somebody. And sometimes I watch John jam with Chad and what they share together in that moment where nobody's talking, but they're just playing. I'm like, oh my God, they have like a, a relationship that's based on sound and it fills their hearts. And the same thing when John is playing with Flea, you know, that intercommunication of melody and everything, it's it's as profound as any other, you know, verbal communication or going on a trip together or having a sandwich together. It's like they bond so heavily over that moment where no words need to be spoken, but we're just in this invisible space improvising together. And I look at them like, damn. You know, that is a connection, a real powerful connection. So, yes, John, I want you to know that when, whenever we're apart and, and I'm doing music, like, I never forget you. Yeah. Yeah. I also, I also want to explain one thing that relates to what you're talking about, which is this band is not a band who comes in and plays their parts. This is a band that are always looking at and communicating with each other musically much more like jazz even though the the form isn't jazz the relationships are more like the way jazz players interact it's a different thing it's so we think of a rock band or a funk band as people who play their parts that's not what this is this is a much more organic dynamic living thing that comes from from you guys playing together and i think that that's uh it's helpful for people to understand it'll make sense the things that you're saying make sense when you understand this is not people playing their parts together that's not what this is it's a communication and an interaction all the time between the members yeah it it often feels to me like like flea's bass part makes my guitar part. It doesn't feel like I'm coming up with something to go with what he's doing. It feels like there's a guitar part attached to his bass part, and that's what I'm going to play. And the same thing has happened with Chad playing a drum beat, just walking into rehearsal playing a drum beat. Like we had that song Stadium Arcadium. I remember clearly he was playing that drum beat. I walked into the studio. That was the guitar part that was attached to it. It wasn't something I'd come up with or contrived. And in the same way, like, no matter how far along a song is instrumentally, it's never till Anthony comes in with the vocals 
that now all of a sudden I know what to do when. I'll, it, it, it changes the guitar part in all kinds of ways. And that happens immediately the first time he sings it. All of a sudden the guitar part becomes fully formed and in the context of the whole song. And it's just this immediate thing. So it, it, it happens in the songwriting process. It happens in improvisation. But it never feels like it's a decision about, um, okay, how would I like to approach this? It's always, it's always as if the other members formed whatever it is that I'm doing, which I think for jazz musicians, the, the good ones who were great listeners, that's how it was for them. They're not super concerned with what they're doing. They're listening to the whole thing, and there's this automatic response that's made by the bigger context. I remember when Chad was playing that drum beat, and I remember when you started playing guitar to Stadium Arcadium. Right. At the alley. Yeah. That was a good feeling. Yeah. I was like, let me, let me just record this real quick. We have to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with more from Anthony Kiedis, John Fushante, and Rick Rubin. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. 
Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. We're back with more from Rick Rubin's conversation with Anthony Kiedis and John Fushante. We're talking about jamming at the North Hollywood rehearsal space, the alley. I want to tell a quick story about one of the things that happened at the alley that was always uh, entertaining for me was when we'd be working on a song and there was a, we needed a new part. And there would be the face-off where we would have a, we'd have a whole song except there'd be a missing element. Mm. And John and Flea would walk to the center of the room, press their faces together, kind of like angry boxers before a match, and then they would both retreat. And then a few minutes later, they would both come back with their idea of what a new part could be. And it was always interesting. They were always radically different. And more often than not, both of the new parts made it into the song. Maybe one as a chorus, one as a bridge, one as an outro. But it was not unusual for both parts to make it. Sometimes one would just win for the, for the, uh, the original solution to the problem. But sometimes both would work their way in. It was always funny to see. The, uh, the cartoon aspect of the faces coming together, making a mean face, and then retreating to make their music. When we were writing Mother's Milk, when DH was in the band, that's when we first started doing those face-offs. And it was this brand new musical skill that I was having to learn how to develop. But, you know, I, did, did you guys do those before I was in the band, Anthony? Not as such. Like, it, there may have been a much more subtle variation on that theme but nothing as defined as we're gonna go face to face we're gonna go in separate like I'll, I'll go outside you stay inside and then in five minutes whatever happened happened and, and it's time to get down to brass tacks yeah so i never i'd never written from that perspective of like there's a song but it's incomplete <laughs> we need a chorus write one in five minutes you know so yeah it it by the time of blood sugar, I was better at it. Like for for a while, like it seemed like Flea was really like like so far ahead of me in terms of just being able to do some automatic awesome thing. Because yeah, you you get to learn like what's you know what's going to really connect with people in the room. A lot of the time, it's the simplest thing you could do. It's not something you need to try super hard, you know. For you need to make something that's going to make it possible for the other people to come up with cool parts. Like, and I think initially I was thinking of it too egocentrically. I was thinking of it as what's a part that's going to dazzle people. And the, the better way to think of it is what's a part that those guys are going to, that Anthony would want to write to that, that, that Chad and Flea are going to come up with good parts too. Let's talk about the new album, whoever wants to start. And Anthony, I'm sorry, I just cut you off. What were you saying? No, that's all right. That's all right. I was just going to say it's a pretty, exciting moment when when you get to listen to the face-off materials and like you said more often than not they all have value and and sometimes one of the contestants would come back with two or three ideas and several of these ideas would make their way into a that song or some other song but I'm, i'm interested to hear what john has to say about the early like phase one of of writing unlimited love it was interesting for me because there was definitely about a 10 year period where everything I did with the guitar was in learning other people's music. I've, I've been making progress doing that since I was 10 years old and, and I never stopped making that progress uh, as far as 
some artists where it was hard for me to understand what they were doing. And I like I didn't really get my head around the Beatles until I was in my early 30s. You know, I didn't really start to get my head around Genesis until I was in my late 30s. There's certain artists who are really challenging, you know. For that year before I rejoined this time, Charlie Christian, I was uh, obsessed with his playing and I learned every solo that he recorded just about. And that was uh, Flea, that was actually some of Flea and my jamming the year before was playing a, uh, Benny Goodman, Charlie Christian tunes together. So I'd been practicing a lot, but I'd stopped making... I'd stopped making rock music and what guitar playing I had done in my music was meant to be as different from what I did in the Chili Peppers as it could possibly be. So when we when we started writing, it was interesting because though I hadn't tried to write rock music for a long time, I had built up all this new, all these new ways of seeing the guitar and new ways of seeing chord changes that that weren't part of my vocabulary in the other times I'd been in the band. You know, normally practicing guitar and playing in the band had been an everyday balance and one had always fed the other. You know, all my every song I wrote in the band was generally inspired by something I'd learned on a CD. But now there was this 10-year period where I'd been taking in all the information without doing anything with it because my expression was on machines and computers and, and not, uh, not through the guitar. So that, that was another reason why I was a lot more comfortable starting out playing other people's music because I didn't want to force anything and I didn't want anything to, I didn't want to feel that pressure of having to live up to what we'd done before. As, as time goes by and I'm playing along with music that I'd like to be influenced by and remembering what this feels like to play with these people, playing the early Chili Pepper songs and cover tunes, stuff is going to start to come out and I'll start to want to write for for this context. And so, yeah, songs started coming out slowly and gradually we phased out the playing other people's songs and, and playing early Chili Pepper songs and writing music came out pretty steady. It was a certain way of listening to music that I hadn't done for a long time, which is play along with things that are going to inspire you to come up with guitar parts when you're playing when you're jamming with the band and yeah, we just kept writing songs and it just kept building and building. I think I thought we would stop when we had 20 songs, but we just kept going and going several times. I stopped writing songs cause I thought we have enough. Let's just work on these. <laughs> and then something or other would happen. And I'd, and I'd start at those points. I'd start concentrating on guitar playing. I, I, I kept thinking there was going to be a phase where I was just going to focus on the technical part of guitar playing and get away from this studying people who come up with good ideas for songs and only stayed in those periods for short periods of time. Cause if, if I would stop writing songs, Flea would just keep coming in with songs. And then I would go like, all right, if he's going to come in with songs, I'm going to come in with songs. And you know, there's that, it's kind of a soft kind of competition that Flea and I have with each other where, where we bounce off of each other like that, like Anthony was talking about. And so that just kept happening all up even while we were in pre-production with you. What would you say your biggest guitar influences are? Can you answer that question? Is it too wide? Well, right now, it seems like throughout throughout making this record, the main people for me were, were Freddie King, Johnny Guitar Watson, Clarence Gatemouth Brown. These are all electric blues players from 50s and early 60s, 40s. 
and then Jeff Beck and Jimi Hendrix have always been big for me, but they were particularly big, especially Jeff Beck while we were making this record. And as far as guitar parts, like that John McGeeck from Susie and the Banshees and John Caruther's Valentine as well from Susie and the Banshees, particularly the album Tinderbox, I find them extremely inspiring as far as people who give me good ideas for making other people sound good. Those are the big ones. Kurt Cobain's guitar playing also I've, I've found really inspiring throughout the making of this record. The 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 reckless abandon. I think I, I had an idea that but by the time I wasn't sure what the direction the album was gonna go was or where how my playing was gonna go, but it seemed like by the time we were recording it, it seemed to have naturally come to be because I'm always playing along with all kinds of guitar players, but I I got to a point where I, I was realizing that what what was happening in my playing was that I was trying to bridge a kind of a gap between someone like Jeff Beck, who has all a lot of very interesting techniques that are very lyrical and expressive, make the guitar almost like it's a singer or something. It seemed like I was bridging a gap between that and someone like Kurt Cobain, who especially in his imp- improvisational playing, it's not so much about techniques per se, it's about putting a lot of energy into the instrument and playing in a way that ha- has reckless abandon. So I would think of those as guitar players as being contrary to one another because Jeff Beck is very in control and Kurt Cobain is completely out of control when he's when he was at his best on guitar. And I felt, it, it felt like that that was the best thing that, that was going on with my guitar playing by the time we were recording was I was trying to bl- blend that kind of expressive lyricism that I was also getting quite a bit of from the blues players that I was talking about, about just really every note having its own personality, every note having its own kind of attitude and, and sound coming from your fingers, combining that with the wild, reckless abandon that that comes when you're playing through a Marshall really loud and you're standing in front of it and you're trying to just put a lot of a lot of energy through the instrument more so than that you're trying to play something that you've that you've thought of in advance. It's more like like uh, you're listening to what's coming out and you're and you're trying to respond to it and make the thing explode, you know, which is my favorite thing to do, whether I'm on a computer or a machine or whatever, that's always the the object is make the machine sound like it's going to explode, you know, make the machine sound like it's got a lot of energy coming through it. So now I was just doing that with the guitar and those people really inspired. And Jimi Hendrix was also kind of a, a, he was that way as well. Like he had a, to some degree, he was kind of a combination of those two things because he sounded very in control in some ways, but he'd also have those those aspects of his playing where it just sounded like he didn't know what was going to happen next. He's just like playing with the feedback and and surprising himself, you know. And that's what that's what keeps it interesting for me. So I like it when guitar players don't sound too much like they know what they're doing or like they have too much of a preconceived idea of what they're going to do. I like it when there's a lot of energy coming through their playing. And sometimes that's because of they're really good at all those techniques that make the guitar speak in a lot of different ways, like Jeff Beck or Randy Rhodes or Eddie Van Halen, who were also people I was playing along with uh, a fair amount. But, you know, I was mainly listening to hardcore punk by the time we were recording it. And that was the energy that I wanted to be in all the music, no matter how soft it was, 
no matter what the style of music was, I wanted it to feel raw and I wanted it to feel feel like it was the spirit of punk, even if it wasn't necessarily the sound of, of punk. Beautiful. Anthony, do you want to pick up where John talks through the writing process? Do you want to start with pre-production and then recording? What the experience was like? What it felt like being in the room with everybody? Any thoughts? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I really enjoyed listening to John's description there. He articulates it in a, in a, in a way that I think about it. I was thinking of, of, this is not some great secret, but musicians that learn the academics of music and the, the technique of music and the, you know, all the different theory and everything. And then they really kind of put all that aside to just let the explosion and the chaos and the moment be a part of what's being played rather than, you know, this kind of meticulous preconceived approach. And, um, I, you know, I think John's a, an interesting example of that because when we're playing live, it is explosive and it, and it is dangerous and it, and it is unpredictable, but I know how much time and, and effort and, you know, songs that he's learned how to play of other people's and techniques that he's taken the time to figure out because uh, John is a unique individual and that he is much less distracted than the average human being on earth today in the way that like Leonardo da Vinci was able to think clearly and, and put in all this great work with what he loved to do because his telephone wasn't ringing and the cell tower wasn't pinging off his head. And John has found a way to do that in the modern age where he can really focus and concentrate and apply himself to his craft in a way where the, the noise of the world has less of an impact, less of a distraction. But I, I love that. I love it when, when musicians just get so good and then they can throw it away and just, you know, be. So that was cool to hear. Like John said, when we got into a room together, it, was, it wasn't trying to live up to, you know, where, where we had left off. And nobody felt like that. You know, I didn't walk into the room and it's like, well, we have to be this now because we were that 10 years ago. It was kind of like, let's just reinvent and, and start from ground zero. And, um, and it was super slow, like in a good way. Like we didn't go in there and, you know, try to write a hit or anything. We just went in there and, and tried to feel each other out. And the feeling was nice because it was relaxed and, and it was devoid of expectation. And we've always had the, the luxury of playing anything under the sun, whether it's, you know, a little beatbox groove that we want to turn into a song or something that was inspired by jazz or something that was inspired by funk or something that was inspired by the Marx Brothers. It was like whatever feelings we have, they, they're, they're all welcome at the table when, when it comes time for us to write. And we had those great experiences of learning blues songs, which were freaking challenging for me because for John, that's a, that's a big part of his vernacular. And for me, I've never really taken the time to go. And, and what sounds so simple and, and the blues world is is so full of uh, nuance and, you know, rhythmic innuendos that, that don't come natural. So that was kind of fun for me. And there was actually a moment where we were hell-bent on going to this daytime <laughs> blues club down in South Central, which is like an active one, I think maybe the only active 
all blues all the time clubs left in LA where these, these elder statesmen of blues still like play out of a storefront or an open garage or something. And it's a club. And I don't know if we ever really got good enough with our, with our blues song, mainly me to go down there and play, but we were like, we're going to, once we get these songs together, we're going to go play the blues club in, in South Central. And it was, it was a nice little aspiration to kind of fuel the fire for a while. And then I just remember John playing a couple of songs on guitar that that he had formed arrangementally, and and one turned out to be uh, White Braids and Pillow Chair, and it was so laid back and so simple, but so emotional and so interesting, and it had this um, this unique arrangement because it had the outro was almost as lengthy as the actual song, which which ended up not being the same ratio once the song was finished. But it started off that outro, you know, the outro to White Braids, that was half the tune. And it just kept rolling like a horse running off into the woods. So there was that, and that was emotional. I was like, oh, geez, I hope I can like find the right colors for this song. And then Black Summer, oddly enough, which is now like our single off the record, was one of the first things that I remember John playing. And it was had such a beautifully sparse verse. I was like, wow, I am going to be naked and exposed trying to get my my voice on this. But I, I'm pretty sure that John had, for the verse of that song, the basic vocal melody. Am I right, John? Yeah. 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 The verse is what you're doing on the verse is pretty similar to what I originally wrote. I realized recently what you're doing on the chorus is it probably was inspired by what I did, but what I did couldn't have been more different in terms of the feeling. of Yeah. I wasn't trying to recreate your melody in the chorus. Yeah. That was something that I thought was just a new part, but, but, but it may have been seeded by whatever you were doing. It starts on the same note. That's the only similarity. Uh Like, 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 uh, yeah, the chorus, my chorus was so different. It just popped into my head the other day. I was like, wow, that was the original chorus. (laughs) There's this girl, Kate, from um, Wales, who's a, a folk singer that I admire. And, and when you wrote that, that verse and it came with that kind of folkish melody, I was like, yay, I get to like try something new and very exposing, which was hard to sing in the beginning because, you know, it's kind of this free-floating melody in, in space there. Maybe not hard for you, but harder for me. Was that the inspiration for you? You almost have a bit of an accent at the beginning of the song. Oh, it's not almost. And it's not that, almost. So is that inspired by Kate? Yes. So I wasn't trying to be Welsh. I wasn't trying to be Irish or Scottish or English or a pirate. But <laughs> I did feel like I, I need to be in character to sing this verse. It, this doesn't have to be like my normal me. It, it can be you know, a variation, a version, a character. And it was just quite simply, it was easier to sing with a little bit of that amalgam accent than not for whatever reason. And and I also feel like that's the right flavor for the verse. From when Anthony first started singing it, he saw it as like, there's different ways to interpret the song. You know, there was like, in some ways it could be seen as sort of a Nirvana type song with a soft verse and an explosive chorus and, but there was another way of looking at the song that was like Anthony, what Anthony heard in it, which is that it's more of a folk song. It's amazing. That's one of the things that makes 
collaboration so interesting is that you'll start with one idea and someone will add something and at first it'll seem weird and then you can come around to like whoa it's really i can't imagine it a different way now it's so fascinating the process yeah i i I don't think that there was that there's a right way to sing that verse or not like now i remember john's early stylings were more in the nirvana mode and that also felt right it certainly it certainly didn't feel wrong but but i feel the same about the the kind of folk approach like in this case both work and for whatever reason i gravitated towards the folk rather than the kurt styling or or john's interpretation of that but i remember liking the way john sang it and and that felt just as right as anything fascinating no it's fascinating how it works like the the way things change when you're making them happens too when we're recording like things will evolve in the recording they'll even change in the mix sometimes where the whole feel of a song comes alive in a way that it didn't since the first time you played it in the room and it was really exciting then you can hear a mix where it like it's back like it's back to that energy it doesn't always happen naturally sometimes it's uh it takes uh massaging to get it to do what it can do i have a question about white braids because you mentioned it earlier do you guys mind if we listen to it sure
I love that song. That song is based on a true life couple who I didn't meet, but some years ago I was with my girlfriend Helena and we were in Ventura at a coffee shop having a snack and this couple showed up and they were probably in their late 70s and the man had the most beautiful white braids you'd ever seen down to his waist and she came with her own pillow to the coffee shop and she sat that pillow down on her chair so she'd be just a little more comfortable and they had their lunch together and I looked at him and I was like that is the most beautiful couple I've ever seen and I ended up referring to them as white braids and pillow chair for the rest of the day when talking to my girlfriend at the time. And it just stuck as they need a song to be written about them. Many years later, John shows up with this cool idea for a song and white braids was born. So you had the, you had the idea never knowing it would be a song for years. Yes. It was just, just a memory from years earlier. It was. It was an emblazoned memory, but it was also probably a jotted note. I'd probably made a note to self somewhere in some phone that was dead in a drawer somewhere. White braids and pillow chair. Yeah. And and I was very touched that you were feeling the song. Because sometimes in the middle of 50 songs, you you can lose perspective. And then to see it have an effect on you. And you would come in and you're like, oh, I took my walk on the beach today and all I could sing was white braids. I was like, okay, the song is correct. If Rick is singing it, the song is correct. (laughs) It's true. It definitely would hit me on the beach. And John used to talk to me about walking around his house singing the outro because that was the vocal in the outro is John's melody. And do you remember that, John? Yeah, that I just kept, I mean, I had the guitar part and which is always playing a few notes at once, but I had a melody that I would, it was sticking in my head as being certain notes in the chords, basically. So it, that, that's been an interesting kind of collaboration is the melody department, because that's the fun of writing music with other people is to see where, 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 a, where a very simple idea becomes fleshed out by other people. So like, usually when I'd write some chord changes, I have to have a melody in my head to know that there's any value in the chord changes. Like it, it's hard for me to, to just write the chords by themselves. Like I need to know that it's going to be fun for Anthony to write a melody over it to, to, to want to bring something in. So I figure if it makes me write a melody, it, it's going to make him want to write a melody. So that's, that's sort of part of my criteria for stuff that I bring in versus stuff that I don't bring in a lot of the time. So Quite a bit of the time, I had a melody, but I wouldn't tell it to him unless he asked. So in that case, he, he I, I believe that was one of the ones where he said, do you have a melody for the for the outro of White Braids? You know, it's, I never felt any kind of sense of attachment to the melodies that I came in with. Sometimes I'd sing it to him the day I brought in the guitar part. Sometimes I'd maybe sing him one of the melodies and not the other. Sometimes he'd interpret the melody in his own way and turn it into something else. Sometimes he'd completely come up with his own melody. Sometimes he'd do exactly pretty much the melody that I'd wrote or very close to it. You know, it it was always up to him. I I remember the first time I brought in a tune like that to him, 
I made it clear after I performed it, like, I don't give a shit about that <laughs> melody. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if you like it, great. But, like, I'm just th- I'm just throwing it out there just because this is the way it came to me. And a lot of the time I'd specifically withhold the melody unless he asked about it because I'd, ma- I'd just make a different judgment for, for different pieces of music. We'll be right back after a break with more from Anthony Kiedis and John Fushante. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast, Audible invites you to enter The Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. We're back with the rest of Rick Rubin's conversation with Anthony Kiedis and John Fushante. John, let's talk about how Flea brings in songs also. And he brings in, they seem to be in two categories, but maybe that's not right. I, I think of it as two categories. One's that he's written on piano and one that he writes on bass. 
and those are two whole different avenues in for his songs. Tell me about the experience of, of hearing a new Flea song and then reacting to it. How do you know what to do in reaction to what he brings in? The piano ones, in some cases, like I'm, I'm thinking particularly of uh, It's Only Natural. Yeah. Like that song, it was just him on piano for a, for a long time, and it kept kind of falling apart. It, it wasn't really naturally developing into something, but he kept bringing it in. He kept reminding us of it over and over, and he would sit down on the piano and he would go like, it was just the basics of the chord progression played like that. And so I started playing bass since he was playing piano. And I came up with this bass line. And I remember we had been throwing the song around for a while. And like I said, it wasn't really going anywhere. But it started to feel like it was going somewhere when I made up this bass line to it. And I was kind of playing the only way I really can play bass in kind of a Paul McCartney style, kind of sliding around in the chord changes and being kind of fancy in a guitar player kind of way. And Anthony was making jokes like, you know, who is that? John Entwistle on the bass? You know, everybody was saying <laughs> what a great bass line it was. Chad was really into the bass line. Anthony was really into the bass line. And as I remember it the next day, Flea came in with the idea that now he's going to play it on bass, you know, like, 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 <laughs> and so it was one of those little competitive moments that like, he did not like, like everybody being excited about my bass line. So he came in and he did an even better bass line and I switched to guitar and that's when the song started to really feel like it had a really real life, you know? So yeah, some, some of the piano ones came together and, and you, you just never knew where they were going to go. He, he learned how to play piano while I wasn't in the band. So that was a brand new aspect of the collaboration that I was adjusting to. Let's, let's play It's Only Natural. It's one of my, also one of my very favorite songs. I had no idea the history of it. I, the beauty is I get to come into the rehearsal room and I hear the songs after they've already turned into pretty much what they are. And we talk about them from there, how we can make them better. But they're pretty much what they are. So... You'll now hear uh, It's Only Natural, not so different than how I heard it when I walked in the first time.
I love that song. I love that song. And I didn't know any of that story. I didn't know that that song came in on piano and I didn't know any of the history of it. Yeah. The, the, and then the, the chorus was the result of a face off. Wow. And yeah, it's one of those things like I was talking about earlier. Like I was into what we came up with instrumentally, but Anthony came in with the vocal as I remember it very quickly once we, once it finally st- sounded like a song and that excitement that I feel, I, I, I kept saying to him while we were making the record, like those, those were the most exciting parts for me in the whole writing process was those days that Anthony would come in with a vocal because I didn't know what to expect. And, I, and it just all of a sudden it would sound like a record to me, you know, and before that it just sounds like an idea for a song, you know. And that excitement that I feel when I hear him singing it, I don't have to think about anything. All of a sudden I know okay, I'm going to play this guitar part at this part. I'm going to play this guitar part at that part. Like the way I'm switching guitar parts in the verse, that all just happened automatically once I heard Anthony coming in with what he was going to do, you know. It's a really exciting kind of osmosis that takes place between us when that happens because it doesn't, it's just something gets transferred to me completely separate from the actual melody that he's singing, you know, and the words that he came up with. It's just like all of a sudden my own part completely comes completely into focus and it couldn't be any other way than what it is right at that moment that I'm first hearing his vocal. Yeah. Cool. 
It's a nice memory I have of that one because I because I hadn't thought much of that song throughout its various stages leading to what it became. And I remember that night because we were recording every rehearsal and listening to them at, at night. And when that song came on with his vocal, I was just I danced all over my living room like multiple times to it. I was so excited. It feels like a, a quintessential Chili Pepper song. It's beautiful. Yeah. I love it. I can't imagine another artist making that song. It's just such a signature part of the, it. It doesn't sound like any Chili Pepper songs I've heard before, yet it's so represents what the band does that it just scratches the Chili Pepper itch in a new way, and I love it. Anthony, before we go, John spent a good deal of time talking about punk rock because he started in punk rock. It's an energy he brought to this project. And tell us about your relationship to punk rock and the, from your perspective, the band's relationship to punk rock. Well, I'm pretty sure that it defies any sort of a verbal description since it is such a, a visceral experience. I mean... My relationship to punk rock is a beautiful thing. It happened, it certainly happened without me being conscious of it. I, I was, I never thought to myself, oh, this is punk rock. I just showed up and was a very kind of peripherally a part of something that was happening in LA that felt good and scary and fucked up and in the moment and of the time. And oddly enough, my, my father, who would visit London regularly in the 70s, came back with the English girlfriend and a Sex Pistols record in maybe 1977 or 78. And he tried to get all punk rock on me. But really, I think he was just trying to, you know, play what young people were into at that moment. And so I remember hearing the Sex Pistols, you know, come from out of my living room when I was getting ready to go to high school. And I didn't really make the connection at that point. Like I noticed it and I noticed how cool the girl was that he was dating. But I, I still hadn't, you know, become part of that mix. Like the British version didn't sweep me away, away in a wave. And then uh, I went to a daytime show at the Palladium where the germs played before I got there. And then by the time I got there, Devo was playing. And these girls were coming out of the backstage and they were putting safety pins through their face as adornment. And I remember kind of connecting the two things like, oh, this music and, and these girls like wanting to feel alive go together. And so that kind of caught my attention. But I was I was in no way a punk rocker. I was like a little... I don't know, at, at very best, like a little new wave kid in high school, you know, listening to the Talking Heads and David Bowie and a few other things. But when Flea and I started wandering up to the Starwood and, and really getting a, a, a true taste of, of the Los Angeles punk rock scene, I started feeling semi-connected. And then it just became a lifestyle. Like the minute we got out of high school and became homeless and lived on the street, everywhere we went and everyone we met and everything we did revolved around punk rock clubs. And it was kind of the tail end of the circle jerks and, and the, the mid level of black flag. And um, 
I remember seeing the black flag logo on spray painted on buildings and going, be very careful at, at those black flag shows. Like something could go south in a hurry. Those guys will kill you. But it was just like from gossip and talk that like, you know, 17 year old people would say. And then Bob Forrest of Thelonious Monster started DJing in a crash pad that Flea and I lived in that had no door. And he was playing us black flag records on vinyl. And it was pretty profound because it was, they were rewriting what was possible, like of something that had never been done before. And that energy, and then Flea ended up joining Fear. So I went to a lot of Fear shows. But at that time, punk rock in LA did not have this definition of it has to be one thing. It was really about anything goes. Anything goes. If you're expressing yourself and you're doing it in a, in a way that does not pay attention to the musical norms of that day, it all went together. So you could have a lounge punker like Hal Negro and the Satin Tones on the same bill with the Bad Brains and... You know, um, so now when people think of punk, you know, they think of a mohawk and, and combat boots and aggression. But when we grew up, it was it was like X was punk, you know, the, like the most storytelling, poetic kind of I don't know what their music is based in, but their presentation was so fresh that it was considered punk as as was the Minutemen, <laughs> which, you know, was had nothing to do with in any kind of violence or, or dominance. It was just let it all out. You know, whoever you happen to be, just let it all out and do it with your friends and do it for free and, and do it when no one's looking. You know, the Minutemen were, were probably one of our, our biggest uh, emotional inspirations growing up during the formation of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And we were lucky enough to plan bills with them because that's how, that's how the punk rock bills were. It'd be like, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Fishbone, and the Minutemen, you know, none of whom really sounded anything like each other. I'm just, I'm just wondering what that time was like. The clarity of punk rock then was different than we think back on punk rock now is interesting, it's helpful. If you watch the Decline movie, the first Decline movie, we get to experience all forms of punk rock, Alice Bag Band, um, it was a wide variety. And I remember being in New York because in New York, punk rock was not that. And I remember seeing the Decline movie and thinking, wow, punk rock's really different in Los Angeles than it is in New York. <laughs> in New York, it was, you know, minor threat. And um, it was just different. You New know? York City trying to claim minor threat. Interesting. Well, it's what we thought of. It's what we thought but, of as but punk But you rock. also had like the Ramones as your, as your punk rock template in Yes. To some degree, like the New York Dolls. And you guys were definitely early. And and I never understood like the competition or, or the, like I'm East Coast punk rock, I'm West Coast punk rock. I was like, it all was so meaningful and so different and so wonderful. And yeah. shout out to Minor Threat, who, who was definitely life-changing. Very much so for Flea. When we lived in that same house listening to Black Flag, Flea discovered Minor Threat. And it was an awakening for him as to how to want to like be as a human being. <laughs> and the first time we ever played DC, we were opening up for the English beat at this theater. And again, I was going through this kind of heavily drug addicted time in my life. And the great Ian Mackay attended the show. And I was so attracted to him as a, as a human being that I, I felt 
terrible about myself. I was like, oh my God, Ian came to see the show and, you know, I'm backstage like, you know, shoving chemicals in my brain. And, and he was the least judgmental, most loving, complimentary, like even though he was Mr. Straight Edge and, you know, proclaiming his, his path, he came up to the, the van window as we were driving away and I was like sweating toxins and, and he came up to me through the little crack in the van window and he's like, that was a really great show. I'm really happy I was here for that. Thank you for that. Good luck on the rest of your tour. And I was like, what a sweetie. Like he stands for everything that I'm not, but he can appreciate something that he's not. And also embracing the kind of punk funk from the West Coast that was uh, so different from the, the established East Coast punk scene. Just a happy memory. Just like my introduction to Ian, like... I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna judge you in the slightest. Beautiful. No, he did. He, he always did his thing, whatever it was, and would share what it was that was his thing. But he never expected it of anyone else. Yeah, John. Do you remember when we went to see Fugazi? Yeah, in San Francisco. You mean? Uh, no, at the Country Club. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Early, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. No, that was great. Unforgettable. Yeah. Man. Yeah, so that would have been like 89 or 90 or something. 90. Yeah. I think it was 90, 90 yeah. 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 Woo! That was really something. Yes. Yeah, those guys are, have been a huge influence on me on guitar as well. Like when when that album Repeater came out, there was there was things about the... There's lots of points when the, the Red Medicine album came out, when Repeater came out. I remember I, I was just felt like I was putting my own guitar style together in 1990, like was where I, I really started to feel like, I, you know, the combination of starting to work with you and, and being more comfortable in the role of guitar player in the band and stuff. And I really just felt like there was some, there was new directions being pointed to for the guitar on, on that stuff that really had a, had a big impact on me. And, and yeah, it's always stayed that way. I always, think of them when we're writing tunes and play along with their stuff. It's just like they've done so many creative things with the, with the guitars in particular. Mm. Yeah. Like take, taking, taking the essence of punk rock and turning it into all these unexpected directions. And that sound thing that attracted me to Adrian Ballou when I was a kid, I, in certain ways, they, they would just make all these sounds with the guitar and put all that reckless abandon into the instrument as well. That just like, there, I've I've had many epiphanies at the moment, at moments when their new album had just come out throughout their career, you know, where it's just like, where it just completely changed the direction that I was going. Beautiful. Do you guys want to pick a song for us to end with? Something, uh, Anthony, what's your favorite track on the album? It's a third way tie for last place between These Are The Ways, Here Ever After, and Bastards of Light. Wow. John, if you were picking between those three, which would you DJ? I guess Here Ever After seems like a good one for this. Great. Let's do it.
beautiful. That I, I felt the influence of the of the fifties blues in the guitar solo. It and I never did before you said that. But the right. if the efficiency of notes and making every note really count and getting the most out of every note was perfect. It was a perfect example. Yet when I listened to it for all these over a year now, I never would have made that connection. It's fascinating to hear the the roots. There, there was definitely not just the blues influence, but a fifties rock and roll influence for me. That a lot, that was a lot of the main music that I was playing along with for a long time during the writing process. There were other times, like by the way, time where I was listening to that kind of music and trying to write stuff like that. But this time, I was just listening to stuff like that and studying it, but trying to think of it as if I'm in the sixties. I'm, I'm after that. Like, what do I do now? I'm trying to do something different from this, you know. And so the influence ended up coming through in unexpected ways because that song was like a Joy Division-inspired thing. and But when Anthony heard it, he heard it. I didn't think it had a chorus, and Anthony heard it as being a Buddy Holly kind of thing where the verse and the chorus are are right, right up next to each other, almost as if they're part of the same section, you know? And so he wrote to it in a way that was 50s inspired because that's that's what he heard in the music but for me that was unintentional you know it, the the song had that i didn't realize that i was writing something that had a chorus built into the built into the verse which is a, a 50s format anthony do you remember the first time you heard the groove i sure do um first of all that the the solo that you spoke to at the beginning of this is my favorite moment of that song it's like wow. all this tribal drum tension and the the real release happens at the for some reason that solo punches a hole in the giant hot air balloon and you can just let it all go at that moment i love that feeling i can't wait to do that song live because i want to feel that live i remember hearing it and hearing my chorus melody immediately which is always a blessing and a gift and a pleasure and a relief um, because at least I know what the hell I'm supposed to be doing on this song. And then I remember, I think, asking either probably John, like, do you mind if I, if I rap on the verses? I know that's kind of out of context with this fifties thing, but, and, and he was like, no, 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 that's great. You know, do that. That'll, that'll, that'll be good. And so then I felt free to just, paint a picture with words and and not worry about melody and, and the verses, which felt really good because it is kind of an odd uh, rub of, of rhythms, like an unexpected rub of rhythms. And when it was all written, you know, there's so much going on that, that really nobody paid attention to the lyric in the band, you know, because we keep moving forward. And then a year and a half later, you know, John is mixing and he's like, I just read the lyrics to Here Ever After, and I really like them. And it reminds me exactly of what it felt like to move to Hollywood when I left the Valley. I was like, woo, finally, you know, the, the picture that I painted got noticed by the right person at the right time. Beautiful. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the time I'd read the lyrics when I was singing backing vocals, but I didn't feel that that song needed backing vocals, so... So I hadn't, so I didn't really look carefully at that one till then, and it so it epitomized a kind of a, a feeling that made me so excited to be alive about the sort of sketchiness and dirtiness and and you never know what's going to happen next kind of 
seedy side of Hollywood. I, for me, I, I, at that time in the, in the late eighties, that was, it was really the feeling that I hoped to be able to put into music one day, you know, it's, so it makes me really happy to to hear the way those lyrics go with that music. It worked out. I love that song. Well, thank you, gentlemen, so much for doing this. Thank you for bearing your soul and uh, sharing what goes on behind the music. You know, like what's what got us to what we get to listen to. I feel like you did a great job of uh, filling in some color in the process that um, we never get to hear. We rarely get to hear. So thank you so much. It's the bearing and sharing hour with Rick Rubin. <laughs> nice to see you. Hopefully I'll see you on that mountain that you're sitting on soon. Great. Please yeah. come. I miss you. I love you. Miss you. I love you, John. I miss you. I love you. Love you, Rick. Thanks so much for this. Thank you. See you, Anthony. See you guys. Thanks to Anthony Kiedis and John Fushante for sharing so much about their creative process as a band and the stories behind the making of their newest album, Unlimited Love. You can hear the new album and all of our favorite Red Hot Chili Peppers songs on a playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast, where we post all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Ben Holiday, Eric Sandler, Jennifer Sanchez, and Shangri-La Studios. Our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like this show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richard. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. 
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.